Thank you, Caleb. Well, it was Wednesday night, and uh, my wife and I live in New Haven, and New Haven was having an arts festival this week, and so we went down to the New Haven Green to see one of my friends play, and uh, watched the concert for, for about an hour, made the mile or so trek back to our house, and about 8 o'clock or so, I, I hop on the couch and, and turn on the Bruins game, decide to put it on mute, and I crack open a book, and I'm going to read, you know, for an hour or two. I spent that day doing sermon prep for this morning. And I'd handed in my text and my title, and Sue, who makes these incredible graphics for us, had already begun working on it. And I'm sitting there reading, and I just begin to feel like the Lord is saying, got a little something different for you. And I'm thinking, you know, I spent the whole day on this already, right? I feel like the Lord is asking me to, to put before you a simple idea this morning, something I've been been reading a lot about, I've been talking through with friends, been working through, and something that's been just tremendously helpful for me. This morning we're going to talk through four liberating truths about God. Not ones that you've in all likelihood unheard of, but ones that all of us need reminders on. You know, in our pursuit to become more like Jesus, as we battle the sin that, that seems to just latch on to us, there are four truths about God that if we can move from our heads to our hearts will be tremendously helpful in our pursuit to become like Jesus. And so my hope for this morning is that what I put before you will be a helpful reminder. Maybe nothing profound, nothing that you haven't heard before, but a helpful reminder. And so perhaps you'll take notes and this will be something you can come back to. I've been coming back to these four truths about God on a regular basis and they've helped me tremendously in my walk and in my pursuit of becoming more like Jesus. I come back to them regularly as sort of a heart checkup to find out where I am and where I might be straying a little bit in terms of my relationship with God. Now, before we get there, I want to just lay a little bit of groundwork so that we're, we're on the same page. Now, we're going to be talking about this idea of sin a little bit this morning, and, and I know it's not a terribly popular idea in our culture. There's a good chance some of you here may not even actually believe in it. The idea of sin may be something foreign, something you're not comfortable with. So I just want to tell you what I mean by that, what working definition we're going to have this morning as we go through our next half hour or so together. Billy Graham has a really succinct two-sentence definition that he uses, and we'll go with that this morning. The, the topic of sin is, is huge, and we could spend a lot of time on it, but for simplicity's sake, let's just go with this, and, and we'll put it up on the screen here in a moment. But he said, a sin is any thought or action that falls short of God's will. God is perfect, and anything we do that falls short of his perfection is sin. So in essence, when you and I think or act or speak in a way that doesn't honor God and, and his will for our lives... We consider that to be sin. And that includes when God calls us to do something and we refrain from doing it. That we call the sin of omission versus commission when you, you actually do something. And the Greek word hamartia that we use to translate into English as sin is a word that literally just means to miss the mark or to fail in duty. But for most of us in this room, defining sin is not a problem. When it comes to this topic, our problem is not in trying to figure out what it is. We're quite familiar with it in our lives, are we not? Most of us can, can understand and relate 
to the words of Paul in Romans 7, where he says with angst in his voice, For I desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do. This I keep on doing. And this is Paul, one of the heroes of our faith, writing these words. And I know I can relate to that. The question that we're going to wrestle with is not the what of sin in our lives. It's the why. Is it because we just don't care? Is it because of just willful disobedience at times? Do we think we know better than God? You know, the Bible has a, an answer for us in this question of why. The Bible tells us that the, the root of our sin is in fact unbelief. That the root cause of what's, what's driving us to stray from God's will for us is that we fail to believe something specific about God as we should. And that behind our sin is, is a lie or an unbelief in the character and nature of God. In Romans 1, Paul writes a rather scathing report on the status of mankind. And if you've read Romans 1, you know there are strong words there. And right in the middle of it, in the heart of the passage, he declares this. He says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator's. And in some of what I've been reading lately, the authors, they say it this way. They say, we exchange the truth about God for a lie. And because we do not believe in God as we should, something else comes to matter more to us than God. Sin is always the result of misplaced affections. Sin makes promises. And when we believe these promises, we think sin offers more than God. And this lie warps our affections. Our love and our delight our fear and our hope becomes misplaced. Now I know what you're thinking, Mike, I, I really don't struggle with unbelief if I'm honest. I've been in this church a long time. I've sat under great biblical teaching for a lot of years and I feel like I've got my, my theology down pretty good. I think a lot of us would probably say that and agree to that. What I'm not talking about is, is a sort of doctrinal unbelief. What I mean is a functional unbelief. You know, all of us struggle on a day-to-day to get what we know in our heads to get down to our hearts where it can resonate and impact the everyday realities of life. That's a struggle for every single one of us here. We know things to be true and yet, right? It's exactly what Paul was saying. I know this, I want this, and yet my life doesn't always reflect that, does it? Jesus wrote about this in John chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, you can read along on the screen. Starting in verse 31, it says, To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave is no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What does Jesus say here? He tells us that it's it's truth that sets us free from being controlled by sin. And so go with me here for a moment. You know, if Christ is saying that right belief in him breaks the chains of sin in our life, then the reverse of that is also true. That wrong thinking or wrong believing keeps us chained 
to sin. And so if we can identify the unbelief or the lie behind what's causing us to live in a certain way, we can get to the root of it and we can learn to speak truth to our own hearts and to the hearts of one another. So what are these four truths? Let me give them to you and then we'll explain them. They're not necessarily self-explanatory. And so I'll, get, I'll have a chance to go through them one by one, but, but here they are. God is great, so we don't have to be in control. God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. And God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. Let's look at that first one. Truth number one, God is great. And by that word great, we're talking about the sovereignty of God. The Bible is chock full of teaching that God is in control of all things. And that as our Father, we can trust Him with our lives. We can trust His sovereign rule over us. And if God is in control, then the fact is you and I don't have to be. We don't have to have tight reins on everything in our lives. You know, we see this, this happen in, in relationships sometimes. I, I know I do. When I fail to believe that God is ultimately in control... I begin to micromanage relationships a little bit. Because I feel like if I don't step in and correct something I see, then it's all going to unravel. We don't believe in, in the sovereignty of God. It, it negatively affects our abilities to talk to others about Him. Because it's hard for us to trust His will for someone else's life. We want to be the controlling factor because we put so much weight on our shoulders. Or perhaps on the, on the flip side of that, we end up living in, in a sort of fear. A perpetual fear just, just comes up in our lives because we're not sure what's going to happen next and we're afraid of what might happen. And so it leads to indecisiveness. Or it leads to us when God calls us to step out in faith, we, we hold back a little bit because we're afraid. And if God is calling us to risk or to step out in faith, we can do it because we trust that he is in control. We can give people space to learn and to grow because God is in control. And it gives us freedom to love others. It gives us freedom to step into those things he calls us to because we trust him with our future. We trust him with the life that we have 20 years from now because he is great and he is in control. Number two, God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. You know, most of us, if, if not all of us, are naturally bent towards wanting people to like us. You know, God made us to be people of community. We love friendship. We love that part of life. And a natural outflow of that is that, you know, we care what people think about us. And we know that that in and of itself isn't wrong. But like everything, we as humans just, we can take things too far and, and bend them a little bit. And so what happens is we begin to care more about what other folks think about us than what God thinks about us. We care more about the approval of those around us than we do about the approval we have in Christ from God already. You know, the fear of man, as the Bible calls it, is, is craving the approval of others to a level that is harmful in our relationship with God. So perhaps we know someone that we love who is, is making a decision that is not good for them. And we can see what's going to happen. We trust God 
in number one, God is great, and yet we feel him calling us to be his agent to step in and have a hard conversation with them. But we shy back because we're afraid of upsetting them. We're afraid of what might happen in our relationship because we so crave their approval that we we shy back from what we feel God calling us to. Because we might be scared they'll be upset. Or maybe we avoid making difficult decisions because we are afraid of people's reactions. But here's the beauty of this truth. If we get our hands around and our hearts around this idea that God is glorious, then we have freedom, absolute freedom. Because in the gospel, we stand before God fully approved. And so we can walk with him in our relationship with him and we don't have to fear the approval of others. We don't have to live as that the, that's the ultimate gain in our lives because we have our relationship with our Heavenly Father and we stand before Him approved already. You know, such a great example of this is, is the life of Peter. And if you know anything about the life of Peter, he was, he was one of Jesus' closest disciples. And one of the most difficult moments of his life, I'm sure, is, is that night when Jesus is arrested. And Jesus says to Peter, you're going to deny me. And Peter says, never! I will never. And the moment comes, and three times in a row, Peter denies he knows Jesus because he's so fearful of what those around him are going to think or what they might do in light of what's happening to Christ. But then, later on in his life, Peter gets his head around this idea that, that God is most glorious. And I don't have to fear the approval for others. And church history tells us that Peter would eventually give his life on a cross, hung upside down, rather than recant his love for Jesus. That's a radical transformation of someone who functionally unbelieves or doesn't believe that that God is glorious, and then it, it reaches down in his heart and transmits to radical change in his life. He realized that his worth was determined by how God saw him, rather than what Others saw him. Truth number three. God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. You know, this is a big one for us. When we, when we fail to see that true, lasting joy and satisfaction is found in Christ alone, we begin to look elsewhere for it. And I know you know what this feels like. I certainly know what this feels like. You know the feeling of turning to something other than God, expecting it to fill what only Christ can fill, and it lets you down. And it leads to shame and regret, because we're going to things that are gifts, perhaps, from Christ, and we're expecting them to fulfill the way Christ says, I only can. Because we don't actually believe that God is good and that He's all we need. So we look elsewhere for it. You know, in the moment of temptation, it's this truth that pushes us through because we say, this thing you've put in front of me, Satan, yeah, it looks good. It looks like it'll bring some pleasure, but I know that God is good. I know that lasting satisfaction is found in Him. And so I can push that aside because my eyes are on God and I know that He is good. C.S. Lewis, who, who many know from being the author of the Narnia series who are being, that are being turned into movies. Some of us know he was one of the foremost theologians of the 20th century. And in his book, The Weight of Glory, he writes this. 
He writes, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. And he says, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased, he said. You know, what is his point here? His point is that far too often, you and I choose to settle for less than what Christ has for us. We settle for less than the deep kind of joy found only in a relationship with our Creator. Because we forget that God is good. We forget that He provides the things we long for. That joy and satisfaction are found in Him alone and not in the things and in the gifts that He gives to us. You think of the, the example of Joseph. You pick up Joseph's life and it seems like he's been forgotten by God. If you know his story, it's one of difficulty, it's one of pain for most of his life. In Genesis 39, we, we see that he's finally risen to a place of prominence. And maybe you know the story, but he's overseeing the entire household of the man he works for. And he catches the eye of that man's wife. Let me read for you here out of Genesis 39. It says, Now Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her. And even to be with her. One day he went into the house to attend his duties. And none of the household servants were inside. She caught him by the cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. Now I'm sure Joseph was well aware that he could have gotten away with it. That there was a moment of pleasure in front of him. But he, understanding that God alone provides pleasure, was able to... Run from that temptation. That the deep kind of satisfaction we're looking for is found in Christ alone. And I'm not standing up here saying we don't enjoy things that God gives us, that, that He doesn't give us good gifts. I understand that and, and I, you know, welcome that. But when we get those things out of priority is when we run into trouble. When we lose Christ as our foundation, we run into trouble. Let's look at the last one. God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. In the last of the four truths, we're reminded that we're saved by grace. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 reminds us that we haven't earned our position before God. And since we haven't earned it, we don't need to prove anything to Him. We don't need to set out to prove ourselves to others. Because who we are and what we are is a gift of God and His grace. Let's watch this video together.
My name is Greg, and this is my story. For a long time, I felt like I was living my life in a courtroom. Every day, I would wake up and begin the process of having to prove myself to my judge. Sometimes that judge was myself, and I would lay awake at the end of the day trying to count up the, the, my performance during that day, all the good works that I had done. And if it was good enough, I'd be able to sleep well. And if it wasn't good enough, which was most of the time, I wouldn't be able to sleep so well. Sometimes that judge was God, and it looks like me, uh, sort of very similar, trying to amass all of my good performance together, sort of to build a case for myself, so that hopefully I could be accepted before him. And sometimes that judge was others, other people, my, my friends, uh, my parents, my pastors. It was almost like they became my God, and it was like I would do anything to, to serve them and to get them to, to like me. I would even change who I was. I would change my appearance and put on a sort of facade to, to make myself more presentable, more acceptable, more desirable, more lovable. After I had lived here in this, in, in this church community that I've been a part of here for about a year, um, really living life on life with people closer in a way that I haven't ever before, I was able to come to a place where I was able to be honest with them about what I was feeling. I was feeling a lot of anger, very frustrated, very anxious a lot, uh, extremely just a smoldering high temperature of a man, just very angry, because it, it seemed like I could never say no to anything. I was saying yes to all these schedule commitments and, and, all the, and everything I could get my hands on, and it didn't matter how well I performed or how hard I worked during those things, I could never find rest at the end of my day or at the end of my weekend. And after about a year, I became extremely burnt out. And I came to my community and I just told them, I said, I am very angry, I'm very stressed out, I need some, some help. Although that was a really hard step for me, I found that by sharing it and by having a lot of conversations and, and just working through that in the context of, of God's church, I realized that there was a lie that was at the, deep at the heart of everything that was going on. And the lie was that God is not gracious and therefore I have to prove myself to him, to myself, to everyone. When God really started to, to bring, uh, bring a certain truth to light, I really started to experience rest. This truth is best expressed, I think, in 2 Corinthians 5. Paul, speaking about Jesus in verse 21, says, For our sake... God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, a lot of my problem was that it didn't matter how much evidence or how good performance or how much hard work I brought to the table in God's courtroom, it just was never good enough. But now I realize that all along, my acceptance isn't based on what I do, but on what Jesus Christ has done on my behalf. I realized that when God the judge looks at me, he sees Christ's righteousness. And that on the cross, when God looked at Jesus, he saw my sin. And there's real rest in there for those who live their days in a courtroom of performance. There's real joy. There's real hope. There's, there's a real deep breath of, of, of rest in that. You see, for Greg, his outward struggle was, was anger. But it was the inward unbelief that God isn't gracious that was at the root of that. 
You know, maybe you know what it feels like to struggle with with anger. Perhaps you've had a hard time controlling your emotions. And, and I wonder if, if in your heart today you're able to find an unbelief that perhaps is driving that. Perhaps for you it's an unbelief that God is great, that he is sovereign, that he is in control. And so when people or circumstances go in a way that you don't prefer or that you don't like, you feel anger just well up in your soul. Or maybe it's the second truth, that God is glorious. Maybe you find yourself craving the approval of others. And when you let someone down, perhaps a, a coworker lets you down and it makes you look poorly in front of your boss, you feel anger well up. Or maybe it's the third truth, that, that God is good. And you know that deep down in your heart, you've come to trust things for satisfaction. And when those are threatened, you become angry. And I don't know what it is for you. I know I've spent a lot of time working through these things and just beginning to pray through what are the areas of my heart, Lord, where I say I believe one thing, but my life reflects something else. You know, as we, we near the close of our time, you know, the reason I feel so strongly about these four truths is that for you and I, the battle to root out sin in our lives is one of the most absolute, utmost importance. Everything that you and I are looking for that drives us away from God, we find in God, in Christ. That is the truth we take home today. All that we need, we find in God. We don't find it other places. Charles Spurgeon once said, If any man is content with his own experience, it is entirely through ignorance. You know, God has more for us, more in our experience of Him, more in our relationship for Him. And so often for you and I, this issue of, of sin in our lives that keeps coming back up is keeping us from experiencing our Savior in a deeper and more meaningful way. And so if there's something in our, in our hearts that we don't actually believe about God that's keeping us from living completely for Him, let's do the work and root it out. Because there's nothing more important. There's nothing of more value than your relationship with your Savior and my relationship with my Savior. Hear the words of Hebrews 12. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What helps us not to grow weary, not to lose heart? It's setting our, our eyes back on Christ. It's remembering our identities in Him. It's remembering the promises of God. We are adopted, beloved children of God. And as our Father, He's given us all that we need. So I wonder if you bow your head with me. I'd like to take just a few moments... And just ask these questions together. And maybe for a moment, you just ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you. You just invite Him to speak clearly now. And let's, let's together ask these questions. God, have I stopped believing 
that you are great, that you are sovereign, and yet you're in control in my life. I know I believe that you're sovereign with my head, but in my heart, am I fearful of giving you control? Or maybe, God, I've I've forgotten that you're glorious. I've neglected to remember that I have all the approval I need in you. And I don't need to fear what others think of me. Oh, what freedom there is in that, God. Number three, God, that you are good. That the desires you put in my heart, you satisfy. God, that the joy that I seek, I can find only deeply in you. The only kind of joy that's lasting is the one I find in you, God. And I don't need to look elsewhere for it. Or God, that you're gracious. That you've extended salvation to me based on nothing I have done, nothing I have earned, but solely on what Christ has done for me. And so I don't need to live my days proving myself to you. I don't need to live my days proving myself to others. Because it's all grace. Because you are gracious, God. Christ has more for you than you could ever imagine. My hope is that these four truths about God would be a a reminder, perhaps daily, of who you are in Christ and what you have in Him. So God, we come before you. We are humbled by your greatness and your goodness and how glorious you are. And the fact that you're gracious to us. Oh God, so difficult as we live our days to remember those things, but we just pray that you would call them to mind. Lord, that you would continually be reminding us of our identity in you. That we are beloved, adopted children of God. Oh, how sweet that is. And how easy it is to forget. And as Hebrews 12 tells us, We set our eyes on you, Jesus, as we seek to become more and more like you. As we try and shed off the things that that don't honor you and, and shed off those layers of us, God, that are still drawn to the things of this world, we want to be more like you. Because we know that there is no more important relationship to us than our relationship with you, our Savior. We thank you for all that you've done for us. We thank you for the promises of the scriptures to us about what you've done and about who we are in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You are officially dismissed. Have a great rest of your day. We hope to see you next week. Go in peace.